Good morning. Uh, before we get started, I want to caution you, if you have any kids in here, this is kind of an R-rated sermon, so you might want your kids to be back in the Sunday school class for this. So, um, I'm not going to be too explicit, but I'm going to be mentioning some things that your kids are going to want to know about if you hear them. And like uh, Ricky said to Lucy, yeah, you definitely need... Ricky said to Lucy, uh, Lucy, you've got some explaining to do. Your kids are going to ask you about this. <clears throat> anyway, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thanks again that we can come to you, hear your word proclaimed, recognize that these are not the words of men, instruction or the writing or the proclamation, but these are the very words of the living God, and so these are living words. Father, we ask as your family that we might grow in faith, hope, and love. Pray that uh, the words that were spoken here today are honoring to you and encouraging to our hearts and have the effect of changing us. Most of all, we ask that these words are filled by your Holy Spirit. They are proclaimed through the speaker by the Holy Spirit, received the listener by that self-same. Be glorified here this morning. Pray. Jesus' name. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a number of different books, but his last work, his last because he actually died before the book was published, was called Ethics, and it was written between 1940 and 1943. It was actually intended to be a series of uh, speeches that he was to be given, but that was after his death, it was collected into a, a book. It's really the most influential book on theology that Dietrich Bonhoeffer ever wrote. It was his major contribution. Um, Bonhoeffer says that Christian ethics have to be considered with a reference not so much to what man desires or what man chooses or what man thinks or what is even societal norms, but rather Christian ethics have to be determined by God. They have to be um, they have to be interpreted by a regenerated man in reference to what pleases God, not what we prefer to do. Because he says man alone can't be the final arbitrator in um, what is good or what is evil, because that is something that is reserved for God alone. Whenever man decides what is right and wrong, his efforts are then doomed to failure. Ethics is a branch of philosophy that investigates and governs the obligations that people have to live in a certain manner. It's not so much <clears throat> determining what somebody wants to do or what society decrees to be acceptable, but rather what one ought to do. And it is a, a systematic field of inquiry that then decides why people act in a particular way and how they interface with one another. The word ethics comes from the ancient Greek ethikos, which then was translated into the more common Greek as, um, uh, I can't remember, uh, ethos, which had to do with your general character, your general personality. And then that was translated into Latin as ethica and entered into the English language about the 15th century as ethics. Now Bonhoeffer, going back to him, says that Christian ethics must necessarily then be unlike the, the world's ethics because Christians determine how they're going to behave based on what serves God. And therefore, Christians ought to be distinctly different from the world. 
But the question before us today is, are we? Are we really all that different from the world? You have no doubt heard or read all the different uh, studies uh, like Barna and the Pew studies, which you know have told us through the years that the gap is closing between what Christians think is good and acceptable, and they do, with what the world outside the church thinks is good and acceptable and what they do. Alarmingly, a study in 2014 um, by Baylor University actually revealed that divorce is actually more common in the evangelical church than it is outside among non-believers. Isn't that shocking? The statistics for Christian young men ages 18 to 30 say that 77% of them look at pornography at least monthly, 35% of them use it uh, weekly, and 32% of them are addicted to it. And we're talking about Christian young men between 18 and 30 years old. Christians who uh, commit adultery, um, are, the statistics are virtually the same as those outside of the church, about 20 to 25%. The, the point is that I'm making that is that Ethics among Christians, among those who proclaim to be followers of Christ, is literally indistinguishable from those in the outside world. It should not be like that. Something is terribly wrong. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 3. We'll begin in verse 6, where we left off last week. And you remember that so far in our study, Paul begins his book by um, explaining that he has great thanksgiving and great joy with the Thessalonians. He gives thanks to God because of their faith. Um, he, he thanks them because they are confirmed in their, their faith and their walk with Jesus. He thanks them because of their, the love that they've expressed to one another. But he's also got his critics in Thessalonica. His critics say that uh, Paul lacks integrity, that he's motivated by greed, that he's a deceitful flatterer, that he's power-hungry, that he's, uh, he's, uh, he's cowardly. He apparently has no affection for them because when things got tough in Thessalonica, he bailed out. He left, and, and that was, uh, he deserted them. He was, he was callously indifferent to them. He deserted them. So Paul responds first by telling them that that's not the case. That's not uh, his motive, and that's not what happened. And then he explains that the reason that he left not that he was deserting them. The reason that he left was, do you remember that there was that big riot? And the brothers, the Christians, uh, took me out of town. I mean, he did not leave willingly. Remember, there was a big riot. They went after, they went after Paul and Silas particularly. Timothy's not mentioned. This is from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. They went after Paul and Silas at the house of Jason. They didn't find Paul and Silas, so they dragged Jason and some other Christians into court and made Jason put up a bond, a bail, if you will, a, a, a monetary pledge that Paul and Silas weren't going to cause any more trouble. So Paul says that he would very much like to come back to them. In fact, he has tried repeatedly. Now we're in uh, 2.18. He has tried repeatedly to come back to them, but what happened? Satan has hindered him. Satan has prevented him from coming back. Then we get to chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is uh, really interested what's going on because he left unexpectedly. He didn't want to leave and he can't get back. And so he sends Timothy back and he says, we're, 
we were left alone in Athens, we found it necessary to send Timothy back to you to find out how you were doing. And we, um, and we sent Timothy with a specific directions to give exhortation and, and encouragement to you. This rug is bubbled up right here. I can't leave it alone. It's like you have a cold sore in your mouth where you keep fooling with it. Anyway, um, and so uh, Paul is really concerned how the church is doing, and he, um, he's, he's been waiting to hear back from Timothy. And again, remember, he sends Timothy because he and Silas can't go back. The ban obviously affects them, but apparently does not affect uh, Timothy. So Timothy goes back to find out how the Thessalonians are doing. That brings us up to uh, chapter 3, verse 6, where we begin today. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if, you're stead if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all of the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So it's almost like while Paul is writing this, you know, I really want to know how you're doing back there. It's almost like Timothy just walks through the door at that moment because it's like an aha moment for, for, for Paul. It's like, oh, never mind, Timothy's here. He's just told me that everything's going good with you. And so, like, you know, Timothy comes back and he's saying, you know, Paul, everything is good. You know, they're walking in the Lord. They're, they're faithful and they're trusting in Christ. They're, they're standing firm in, in the word. And so Paul receives this as the best of news. And you can hear that, this, this joyfulness in his response. This is really good news. Have you, ever, have you ever walked with someone going through a really tough time in their life, a Christian, I mean, and you're inspired by the way that things are tough for them, but they're trusting in the Lord anyway. Have you ever had that experience? And you're thinking, I don't know how I would bear in a case like that. I don't know how I could deal with that kind of loss or that kind of disappointment. But you know how it's encouraging to you when they trust the Lord, when, when they're walking faithfully? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying how encouraged he is to hear that they are walking faithfully, knowing that there's quite a bit of persecution. Uh, verse 11, um, there we are, okay. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may be established in your hearts, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I always enjoyed, when I was a kid, listening to my grandfather pray. And then as I got a little older, I really enjoyed listening to the pastor of the church that I attended pray because these guys were like seasoned veterans. Remember in a previous generation, have you ever heard the prayers of those old guys? You know, and you know they've been walking with the Lord for years, and there's this familiarity and, and deep respect in the depth of their prayers. I just love listening to those prayers. And imagine if you had the opportunity to listen to the prayers of somebody who actually walked with Christ, I mean, physically there. You could actually hear the prayers of one of the disciples, or in this case, an apostle. Isn't it great that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to record such a prayer for us? 
there was a theologian from many years ago, so pardon me, the old language here, but he writes, oh, how blessed it is to hear some aged saint who has longed walked with God and enjoyed intimate communion with him, pouring out his heart before him in adoration and supplication. But how much more blessed should we esteem it could we have listened to the utterances of those who accompanied with Christ in person during the days he tabernacled in this scene? And if one of the apostles were still here upon the earth, what a high privilege we should deem it to hear him engage in such a prayer. Such a high privilege that most of us would be willing to go to considerable inconvenience and travel long distance in order to be favored. And if our desire were granted, how closely we would listen to his words. That's, that's kind of the intent of, of what's written here. And you think, wow, what a cool thing to be able to not only hear the prayer of the apostle, but feel the heart as, he, as he's reiterating this prayer back to them. And notice again in uh, verse 13, how Paul ends every one of these chapters with a reference to the second coming of the Lord. And we get to verse 13, he prays that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I wonder, I ask myself this a lot, if I knew Jesus was coming back like in the next few days, how would I live my life differently than I, than I do now? Shouldn't we always be living our life with the expectation that Christ could return at any moment? Shouldn't we always have that kind of, of uh, anticipation so that we live our life in the constant expectation of the return of Christ. And so the consequence would be that we would be longing for, for godliness in our life and that we would be longing evermore that the triad that we talked about last week of faith, hope, and love, or but it's not that way in Thessalonians. It's, it's love, faith, and hope. Anyway, it's the same three ones. We would be longing that we would constantly be growing in love and expressing it to one another, and constantly be growing in our faith, constantly be growing in our hope. So that's what Paul is saying here we, we should be uh, mindful of. So we begin chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us um, uh, how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So at this point, Paul begins by saying, and now finally, well, what do you mean finally? Like we're in the middle of a book. You know, we've been, we're, this is the beginning of chapter four. Well, he doesn't mean finally like he's wrapping things up because there's a lot more left to go. We're, we're only halfway through. But he means he's, he's taking us back to the intent of his letter. You know, we've been talking about all these other things. Finally, let's get to the point. Finally, let's talk about what needs to happen in your life. Finally, we're, we're going to deal with the, the real issue here that the last three chapters have been leading up to. And he begins by saying, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. And he uses a real strong word here, to urge. It's a real important word and because Paul has taught them to have a very robust faith in Jesus Christ. They, they understand the, the theology of grace. They realize they are saved by grace in Christ Jesus and not by any works that they do. That's an essential platform to stand on here. They're saved by what Jesus has done for them, 
not by anything that they can do. And yet now Paul is urging them to do something because the reason that we are saved ultimately is to be made to be regenerated, to be changed into the very image of his son, Jesus Christ. And that involves our participation. You know, we can hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. We can also aid the work of the Holy Spirit in that process of making us like Jesus. And so he's urging them on, like a good uh, physical trainer or, or a athletic coach. You know, he's got some, got some great athletes, but he's urging them to be their best. He's, he's pushing them on. He's, he's wanting them to, to keep growing in the Lord. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And the word sanctification comes from a, a compound word, um, sanctus, you recognize as, as uh, holy, and ficare is a Latin to, to make, so to make holy. Sanctification is the process, the lifelong, ongoing process of changing us, of making us like Jesus. It comes from the, the Greek word that's used here is hagios. There's a very famous church in Constantinople called Hagia Sophia, the church of uh, holy wisdom. So Sophia or Sophist of wisdom and hagios, holy. So he's saying this is the process of becoming holy. And how do you do that? Well, he tells us it's a process of walking. He uses the word walk in verse 1. It's, 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 it's the how you get from point A to point B. You're, in the, you're walking. So we, re, we acknowledge that, that God is utterly holy, meaning that he's separate from and he's completely uh, distinct from that which is not holy. He, he is good. There is a sense of absolute moral purity. That's what Paul is urging us on to, to be like God in the sense of holiness, not to be like God, that we are like God, like Satan wanted to be like God, but we are to be separate from those things which are sinful, that we are morally pure, that we are being sanctified. And he tells us that the method is to separate ourselves from sin, because we have very different values from the world, from the non-believing world. And so Paul tells us um, in chapter 5, verse 22, that we should abstain from uh, every sexual, every form of evil. Uh, I think that's right. 522, we should abstain from every evil. Let me cross-reference that. Okay. Um, back to verse 3. Uh, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What's the will of God? Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one transgress, the wrong, transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an, is, a, is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Professor, you'll like this one from MacArthur. <laughs> MacArthur said, since the 1960s, when the modern sexual revolution really accelerated, Western society has had fewer and fewer rules 
governing sexual attitudes and behavior. Freedom of sexual expression has in many ways become the cultural god that rules over all other idolatrous gods of postmodern culture. People want the right for themselves to express their sexual desires at any cost, even if that means aborting the unwanted child resulting from sexual union or risking a sexually transmitted disease. Several obvious tenets constitute the world's immoral, unscriptural outlook regarding sex. First, people are basically good and all, but the most heinous activities should be tolerated. Therefore, virtually any kind of consensual sexual activity is good, especially if one views sex as merely a way of personal gratification. Second, since sexual activity is only a biological function, it is normal and necessary to engage in it without placing any moral restriction. Third, since casual sex is just another form of fun and pleasure, it's permissible to enjoy sexual activity anytime and with any consenting partner. Fourth, instant gratification is more important than delayed satisfaction. Therefore, having premarital sex is legitimate and preferable to waiting until marriage to have sex. Now, Christians understand the dogmas of today's permissive sexual society, just as Paul did. And Paul recognized the tendencies of his day. And we tend to think that this culture that we are living in now is going to hell in a handbasket. Let me tell you, it's already been there. It was actually worse in Paul's day than it is now. And you say, how could it be any worse? Because our society has had the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian influence. Their society did not have that influence. And so consequently, the Greco-Roman world was actually far more perverse than the society that we live in today. It's far more than the debauched Western culture that we think is so bad. In Thessalonica, for example, it was common practice to have premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, transvestism, uh, a wide variety of any kind of erotic perversion that could be found there. And the society didn't condemn that. So they had the consequences of a very seared conscience that didn't condemn their hearts for their activity, plus a society that saw nothing particularly wrong with any form of sexual activity. And add to that, they lived in a culture where their religion encouraged it. The idea that if you would have sex with a prostitute of a temple implied the fact that you were, through her or him, actually having sex with the God that they represented. So in every way, it's encouraged. It's, there's no discouragement or disdain um, culturally from that. It was more tolerated than, than it is by today's standard. So when Paul and Silas and Timothy found this church there in, in Thessalonia, Thessalonica, they're calling these Christians out of a radically different culture. And they're telling them, now that you have the Holy Spirit in you, you must live a completely different way. You have to completely abandon your ties to this pagan background. The word he uses here is porneia. You think you know what it means, but you don't, because you think it's, it's the prefix to pornography. Actually, porneia means any immoral sexual activity 
outside of the bounds of marriage, anything that's abnormal or immoral. Orne is the, is the Greek word for prostitute. Graphe is to write or draw. So pornography is to draw a picture of a prostitute. That's not the word we're using here. This word is far more encompassing, porneus. It's any form of sexual illicit behavior, any sexual activity that deviates from the monogamous relationship between one man, the husband, and one woman, the wife, for a lifetime. Anything outside of that is illicit, is porneus. Now, some people think, well, you know, your God is, is prudish, and he, he thinks sex is dirty. Not so. Who invented it in the first place? In fact, God not only endorses sex, he blesses it. And he says marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. He's actually pleased with sexual activity within the boundaries. One man, one woman for a lifetime. Anything that's not that is unacceptable to God. Paul's teaching here sounds awfully strict and demanding, doesn't it? That's because it is. And his later teaching to the Ephesians and the Colossians makes it even more strict and more demanding because he would tell the Ephesians, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Colossians 3, 5, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ Jesus Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body to be dead to immorality and impurity. There's that word I want to focus on again. It's acatharsis. You know the word catharsis. It means cleansing. And, you know, in psychology, you, you spill all your guts and how all the things that make you feel bad is very cathartic, cleansing. See, this is acatharsis, not cleansing. This is defiling. Any impurity. So what Paul is saying is beyond just acts of immorality, it includes thoughts of immorality that he is uh, telling us that we need to abstain from, which, by the way, sounds a whole lot like what Jesus said in John. Uh, can't pull it up. Whoever looks at a woman lustfully in his heart has already committed adultery. Any, whoever is, I think it started on. You know what I'm talking about. At any rate, Jesus was saying it's not just simply the acts which he disapproves of. It's the heart. It's the thoughts. And so Paul is calling us to well more than just avoiding immorality of acts. He's saying you need to avoid immorality of the thought, too. Now, those are very uncomfortable words for us. But Paul's words to them are just as applicable to them as they are to us today. Because we live in a world which is growing in its sexual immorality, which encourages sex outside of marriage, especially premarital sex. It encourages same-sex attraction. It encourages adultery. It celebrates those things. And increasingly, we see that as being the norm in society, where most of us have lived long enough to know that these were things that in our lifetime were disproved by society and now are encouraged, not just simply tolerated. Again, sex is to be, sex is designed to be within the committed, faithful, lifelong 
relationship between one man and one woman. But the problem is that we live in a society which doesn't think that. We came from a society which doesn't think that, and that society is influencing the church rather than the other way around. And that's why we see that the, the statistics really aren't that different in the church or outside. Abstaining from anything sexually immoral, verse 4, is that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. The instructions are really simple. Paul, this is what Paul's saying. He says, I know that the culture around you does not abstain from these things, but in the church, we are going to abstain. We are going to be different from the world around us. These guys are called to control their, their bodily appetites and passions to not be like the, the Gentiles around them who are telling them, just do whatever you feel like, do whatever you like. And whereas in our licentious society, it defines sex as something that's exclusively private, nobody else's business, the truth is, it is. And it affects more than just you. You know, an example, a woman seduces a man away from his wife. She is, uh, the, the wife is also affected by this immorality. Or a young man seduces a young woman to sex. He's not only affecting that young woman, but that young woman's future husband. He's depriving that future husband of the purity of this woman that could be intended for holiness. Or... What's another example? A, a middle-aged man or a teenager plugs in to pornographic images and the consequence is that he is diminishing his capacity to love real people. Because sexual sin in, inevitably involves other people. It involves spouses and parents, and churches, and children, and siblings, and friends, and It always involves the church. You know, whenever a sexually immoral event takes place in the church, it, it never brings the church together. It never unites the church. It always divides the church. Because one person's going to side with one of the people, and others going to decide to side with the other. The problem comes up in the church. The church is inevitably critical of the elders because they, they don't feel like the elders handled it the way they wish the elders had handled it. It's always divisive. It always breaks up unity. That doesn't mean, however, that sexual sins can't be forgiven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 11, Paul lists a whole litany of immoral activity and then he writes, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, it's entirely possible to repent and be washed clean of any sins, including sexual sins, and to know that you can be graciously and gloriously forgiven and accepted by God. And that doesn't mean that Believers who have been forgiven aren't going to struggle with these things. It's always curious to me that, you know, the guy in the Bible that writes 
that wrote the most number of psalms, King David. And you read his early psalms, and you think, wow, what a relationship he had with God. What happened? What's he known for? You don't remember him for his psalm writing. You remember him for his adultery. And it can happen to any of us. But a Christian must never make peace with these sins or seek to justify them. And we should always recognize that when we toy with them, our souls are in danger. And that's why Paul gives us this very solemn warning in verse 6 that there is an avenging justice and wrath of God. Because God has called us not just to be saved, God has called us to holiness. Called us for the purpose of becoming like his son, Jesus. It simply makes no sense that if a person comes to Christ and says, Lord, emphasis on the instruction here, Lord Jesus, I want to be saved, I want to be your disciple, just don't want to walk in the manner that you tell me. What kind of sense is that? Don't raise your hands, but who's not guilty of that? Those who attempt to justify their sexual immorality, whether it's watching pornography or whether it's acting on same-sex attraction or whether it's acting on a relationship outside of marriage, they're doing You've given in to the temptation of sexual immorality of any kind. You need to repent. And you need to stop doing those things. You need to avoid those situations that lead you into temptation that you can't back out of. Then you need to remember that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover every sin of every one of his people. You need to remember what Paul says here is that we have been given an ally to help us in the struggle, and that is the Holy Spirit, because he's the one who is actively sanctifying us. This is the will of God, he says in uh, verse 7. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Enough on that. Verse 9. Now, considering brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before the outsiders and be dependent on no one. There was an occasion when Archbishop Usher was shipwrecked out, out, out off the coast of Ireland, and he, he wanders around looking for shelter and, and, and food and, and protection, and he, ironically, he walks up to the house of a local clergyman, and he identifies himself as a local clergyman, like all local clergymen are, <laughs> very skeptical, doesn't want to help him, and doesn't believe he's really a bishop. And so the local clergyman thinks he's going to put him to a test. He says, I'll, I'll help you if you can tell me how many commandments there are. And Archbishop Usher says, there are 11. And the man says, the clergyman says, no, there are only 10. 
Archbishop Usher says, if I can prove to you that there are 11, then will you give me assistance? So he says, can't ask the, the man to give him his Bible, and he turns to John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another, and then gets the help that he's after. Our Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, he explained to us how it will be that the world will know that we are disciples. It's in the next verse, John 13, 35. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Notice, he does not say the world will know who are his disciples because we have correct doctrine. He does not say the world will know his disciples because we have powerful words or able to do startling miracles. He said that the world will know who are his disciples by their love for one another. That's a powerful testimony of the Christian faith. The first century Tertullian, a Roman uh, uh, historian, wrote, see how they love one another. Christianity exploded in the Roman world not because there were some great evangelic crusades, evangelism crusades. I don't mean evangelic, I mean evangelistic. It did not explode in the Roman world because we came up with a brand new theology that was compelling. It exploded because of the witness of the church that they loved one another. Love was the distinguishing factor of the church. And yet, in spite of that, what is the church known for today? We are known for our divisions. We are known for our fights. We are known for our disagreements. We are known for our anger. We are known for our specific dogmas and doctrines. But we are not known for our love for one another. That's not how it should be. We need to regain our love for Christ and our love for the church and our love for one another. Love is at the heart of the mission and the witness of Christianity in the world. Loving one another ought, ought to be the outflow of our relationship with God. How does Paul say the church obtains this love? It's provided for us. The love and the unity of the church is a gift of the Holy Spirit. You can't create it, but you can destroy it. You can resist it. But it ought to be the very test of truth. John said, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. He's not, because God is love. See the priority here that, that, that Paul is placing on the, the evidences of, of love in the church. And the reason that we love is because the Holy Spirit grants us that, and we are mimicking, rather, the, the love of, that God showed in sending us his son, which is the ultimate expression of love. Verse 11. Uh, Paul admonishes uh, the Christians here. Uh, can't find it. Live quietly and mind your own business. Basically, that's what he said. Now, we don't mind our own business by being insensitive to the needs of other people. That's not what he's saying. When it comes to 
especially our brothers in Christ, their, their suffering, sickness, their, their poverty, their affliction, their business is our business, and, and we need to address those things. And the same thing is obviously true for a brother or sister who's wandering away from Christ. It's our business to get up in their face, right? Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another daily, every day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that's not what he's talking about, but rather he tells us, mind your own business and live a quiet life. There's a song that came out. Charlie, you might remember this from John Fisher, The Still Life. You know that song? But John Fisher was one of the first Christian, modern Christian uh, songwriters and, and musicians. But he writes about the still life. He says, uh, you lose yourself in the fast life, in the fast pace of the rat race, where no one cares who you are. And nobody cares if there really is a God and he has something to say. I think what Paul is telling us is that the two things go together, that we need to live, you need to get off the rat race of life. We are called to live this heartfelt peace, still life. And an expression of that still life, that heartfelt peace of life, is minding your own business. That's really hard to do because the two go together. And let me give you an example. Think about how agitated you get watching politics, especially this time of the year. And there's nothing you can do to change it totally outside of your hands. And, and yet we get so worked up about it, about the politics. That's the example I want to use, but the application I want to use is you need to cool your jets. You need to just calm down. And he's saying you, you need to live this still life, this quiet life, mind your own business, and don't get agitated about the, the, the failing morals of the world, the failing ethics that everybody else has, about everybody else's uh, practices. Just focus on loving each other and your own values, your own ethics, your, your own morals. In 1994, there was a great celebration at Westminster Cathedral in London. They were celebrating the 350th anniversary of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the prior to this, getting ready for this great celebration, they had to spruce the church up. So they had these great scaffolds all on the outside of the church to, to clean it and pretty it up. At the celebration was this particular guy named Alex, no, Eric Alexander. And he spoke about Paul and the early Christians as they faced persecution. And he asks several pointed questions in his speech, he asks, what is the really important thing that's happening in the world in our generation? Where are the really significant events taking place? What's the most important thing? Where do you need to look in the modern world to see the most significant event from a divine perspective? Where is the focus of God's activity in history? The most significant thing happening in history is the calling, redeeming, and perfecting of the people of God. God is building the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of history is simply a stage God erects for that purpose. He is calling out a people. He's perfecting them. He's changing them. History's great climax comes when God brings down the curtain on this bankrupt world and the Lord Jesus Christ 
arrives in his infinite glory. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding of the real work. And he breaks off in his speech. This is a long one, so I'm just giving you the highlights here. And he, and he makes mention of the fact that the last time that he had been in London, the, the church was wrapped in that scaffolding. And he, he goes on to say, one, one could see its true, excuse me, one could not see its true beauty, but one was aware that something of great significance was happening behind that scaffolding. Something of majestic beauty was to be revealed. And then drawing on that image, um, he, he applies it to our lives, uh, and he says, there, there will come a day when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. Do you know what he will be pointing to when he says to the whole creation, there is my masterpiece? He will be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. And in the forefront of it all will be the Lord Jesus himself who will come and say, here I am and the children you have given me perfected in the beauty of holiness. That is the day we are laboring for, and that, in that day, we shall be resurrected. We need to live for that day, the day when God will manifest his glory to his people. If we live for that day, it will change our living, it will change our serving. God grant, as we say, even so, come. Sometimes, Lord, when people are walking together on a trail, their eyes get fixated on the feet in front of them. See only the next step that needs to be taken and not the, the beauty around it. Sometimes I feel like we live our Christian lives with that kind of narrow view. And there's so much more going on you are doing in your creation and specifically that you are doing in your church, perfecting it, working in us, that which is pleasing in your sight. And you use all kinds of situations, even adversity and pain and struggle and tribulation. We don't see the bigger picture because we're focused on what's happening in our life right now. Maybe we can't see beyond the veil, but see well enough to say that God is at work way beyond our, our ability to pursue. May we trust you in that. May we live for your glory, not just for the sensations or the temporal pleasures of this world. Pray, God, because I know we, we all struggle with impure hearts. And I pray that you give us victory over those things, especially those signature sins which are drawn back to you over. That you would make us pure. And you would sanctify us, make us holy. Thank you so much that there's forgiveness when we fail, but I thank you even more that there's power to walk in victory and uprightness. And that's the power we want to tap into. Live lives that please you that bring you glory. To that end, we praise you through the name of your Son, whose death has given us life.